Hello, friends. Welcome to the Industrial Marketing Show, the number one podcast for marketers in the manufacturing space. And I am one of your hosts, Matthew Shinella. And I am MJ Peters. And we're back, MJ, from vacation and from wedding. Congratulations. Thank and you. so let's uh, let's dive into this episode because we're, we're back on track. Yeah, for sure. So um, well on vacation. Uh, well, I guess I wasn't on vacation anymore. Matt was on vacation. But um, I came up with this idea of this episode topic, which was learning to speak the language of your leadership team. And um, it's just one of those things that I learned a lot about uh, in my role at Firetrace, uh, sitting on a leadership team and hearing what other people were talking about. Um, going into that role, like I had previously been involved with a lot of product strategy, a lot of go-to-market strategy stuff. So I felt pretty confident that I knew how to speak the language of the leadership team. But um, man, I wasn't necessarily wrong, but I wasn't necessarily right either. There's a lot of things that go into speaking the language of the leadership team, um, both things that you might be underestimating the value of. And I think there's a couple of, of financial topics we're going to get into in a couple seconds here um, that that it's it's good to have uh, that insider perspective on. But then also some things that you might not realize that the leadership team cares a lot about, uh, primarily around customer insights. So I want to start off with the financial side of things, and we're gonna we're gonna go through a couple of metrics that your leadership team is probably thinking about, um, and how you might be able to impact those metrics as a marketer. But um, I'll just tee this up by saying I remember when I first got into my role at Firetrace, each leader of a department had to submit a monthly report, which then got rolled up into what was called the president's report, which then got submitted to Helma Corporate. And um, everyone was circulating their reports to every other department. And I remember at the beginning, I would try to read all these reports and like the finance one, I just like did not understand it at the beginning. I was like, this report is boring. <laughs> Why are we talking about debt collection? Like nobody cares about this. But like, the president would always like copy paste like a bunch of stuff from the finance report into his final president's report. And I was like, okay, like this is what the president cares about. I should like make an effort to read these and understand what's going on here. So um, I will share some of what I learned from, you know, trying to self teach myself finance on the job. <laughs> um, and, and maybe this will be useful for you in your job. So we're going to go through three metrics, revenue, margins, and then cash. And uh, these are like metrics that will come up a lot in a boardroom. So um, giving you a few thoughts on, on how to think about these and how to frame what you're doing in marketing against these metrics. And I'll kick it over to you, Matt, first uh, to talk about revenue. What has been your experience talking about revenue with the leadership team and, and how do you move it as a marketer? I think no matter what happens with regard to what you do with your job, your your primary responsibility is to positively impact revenue. And your president, by and large, isn't going to care how you get that done so long as you're able to show it and prove it. And so I always looked at revenue for me as the be all end all. I wanted to be trending in the right direction. I wanted things on the board that I could point to and say, Look, you know, we generated this much an opportunity. Our historical win rate is this, so we can expect to get about this, you know, come come the close date. So, I always was talking revenue and pipeline. That's sort of where I, I start my conversations with my clients right now. It's where I started my conversations when I was at Binzel. Um, it's when I went to Gravy. That was what I was grading on by and large. So, 
I think talking about your impact in regards to sales and revenue is going to be what not just earns you respect from your president and, and earns time to talk to him, talk to him or her about your activities, but is also going to get the the people you need to help you achieve that goal. Because you know, marketing can't do that alone. Marketing is not going to follow up on leads. Marketing is not going to create opportunities. Marketing is not going to qualify you know people who come in through your activities. You need sales to do that for you. And so in order to do that, you need to talk to everybody on your on your team, your sales leader, your key accounts leader, and your president, um, and your and your finance leader as well about revenue. It has to be you you have to start and end with revenue, whether that's pipeline or revenue realized. That's where the conversation has to start and end. And then everything else just is sort of like, here's how we're getting there and are we trending in the right or wrong direction? But to me, that's that's how I've always framed the discussion with them. And that was partially, and that was by and large why I was able to get people behind my my programs and everywhere that I've gone is just because that's been my singular focus. And I've also you also have to be willing to admit when you know you're not trending in the right direction and have an action plan for that. So just having honest, effect discussion about how much you're impacting the bottom line of the business, especially against your budget for the year, are things that you need to be having conversations about all the time. Yeah. So. Um... Quick note on revenue in maybe SaaS businesses or B2C businesses. And um, I think in particular, like some of the SaaS marketing influencers and maybe micro influencers are very prolific on LinkedIn talking about revenue. Um, it's a little bit different in a manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. So like um, your uh, direct impact right away on the financial statement, um, even after an order closes, is not going to be in the revenue line. It's going to be in bookings or order intake. Yep. So um, sometimes, especially in a manufacturing business with like long lead times, the bookings happen like 90 days, 120 days, like six months before you turn it into revenue. And um, a lot of the revenue scramble at the end of a quarter, let's say, if you're a publicly traded company, um, is is an operations uh, scramble. And uh, mm -hmm. that's why your ops team doesn't want to have any meetings with you at the end of the month. Um, they need to ship everything. To, uh, typically, I, I'm guessing some businesses do this differently, but a lot of manufacturing businesses, you get order intake and, and that's a purchase order. You enter it into the system, that's manufacturing team builds it. And then when you ship it, you can invoice it and then it's revenue. So um, it, sometimes it may benefit you to talk in terms of order intake as opposed to in terms of revenue, because at yeah. the end of the day, really the ops team owns the revenue number and the sales team owns the bookings number. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you know, for for those who, who maybe don't know bookings, I mean, we're, they're talk, we're talking about lead times for for products once they're once they're actually ordered and a PO gets issued. And so, there's some products out there that are going to be six weeks, six week, eight week, twelve week lead time upon the purchase order being being sent. I mean, most people, at least uh, from, from my experience on the sales side, they're going to look at it in your CRM and the opportunity closing. Once that happens, you as a marketer have by and large done your job, and it and it becomes it becomes on it, it comes down to production at that point to to meet the lead time and keep the client happy. So, but you should still be very interested in it because there's definitely things that can fall through because you know lead times just take too long and clients get really antsy about it. Uh, there's also the distribution factor that goes into that as well sometimes. But but yeah, that's that's sort of just my my only addition to that point. 
Yeah, so so one um, chart that we always looked at at Firetrace was uh, the bookings trend line over like trailing 18 months and mm-hmm. the revenue trend line over the trailing 18 months. So the revenue trend line is going to lag behind the bookings trend line. And so if you can if you can actually get the data for, for bookings uh, out of your ERP system and kind of watch where that trend line is headed, um, first of all, as a marketer, that's the trend line you're going to be moving. But yep. second of all, um, it is an early warning sign that your revenue may dip in future months, right? So let's say yeah. your, your bookings are ahead of revenue by 90 days because that's how your lead time works. Like if, if your bookings have been consistently dipping for the last 90 days, your revenue is going to start dipping. So bookings is something that your leadership team will worry about if it starts trending down before revenue starts trending down. Yeah. In fact, your, your sales director or, or VP of sales is probably going to talk more about bookings and sales to be, they to be should. perfectly honest. <laughs> I mean, no, they, they, they should, and they will. I can tell you Larry at, at Binzel, Bookings was bookings was his leading indicator for everything, and just because it's basically a predictor for your success down the line. And so that's that's certainly like when you talk about your impact on revenue, you need to look at that in terms of uh, bookings as well. You can't uh, obviously can't forget about that. So I want to make one more point about revenue before okay. we move on to talking about margins, which yes. is that um, I think people make it sound like it's easy to move the revenue number as a marketer. It is not easy. Like, um, don't be fooled. Like it's, it takes a long time and a lot of really good fundamental work and a lot of um, teamwork to move a revenue number meaningfully at a manufacturing company Um, in a way that I, I don't think is um, just, you know, discussed openly um, in a way that, uh, like, I don't think you get the same clear picture in, in software as a service, right? Because the software companies are like the underlying growth rate of the markets that those companies are in is like 100, 500, 1,000 percent, right? Right. And so there's a lot of momentum there, whereas in a manufacturing company, like the underlying market growth rate is probably like 3 or 4 percent. Um, and so 15 percent growth is like super impressive in a lot of the markets where manufacturers operate. Um, And so then you just start thinking about it in terms of your marketing investment, right? Like if you're investing a million dollars in marketing um, and and your marketing investment is going to grow some portion of your business by 15%, then that portion of your business has to be very large in order to pay back the marketing investment, right? So, um, I'm going to do some math here. A million dollars divided by 0.15, that segment of your business has to be a a $6.6 million business. So if you're investing a million dollars in marketing, um, you have to generate 6.6 million, uh, you have to generate 15% growth on a $6.6 million business to... uh, pay back the cost, but that actually assumes 100% margin. So you're probably looking at 15% of growth on a $10 million business to pay back uh, the marketing cost of a million dollars. So um, think about that, right? When you're thinking about which segments to focus on, um, I've pre- we've previously spoken, Matt, about how you can really only move the needle in one or two segments if you have a small yeah. marketing team. Like you probably want to pick the big segments 
unless you can deliver like ridiculous market outpacing growth that is typically unheard of in manufacturing. Yeah, I think this is a great segue into margins as well, because I think this this really will decide for you by and large where you should focus energy. Um, you know, we, we put margin in a second. And I think for a lot of manufacturing companies, you all sell, we sell a lot of different stuff. There's a lot of different product lines out there that get pushed, right? And product management and some of the and and, and product management teams want to want they all it, it's it's all their baby right they all want their their product line like for me and when I was in the welding business it was like okay we got fume we have handhelds we have robotics we have chemicals we have laser everybody wanted you know that to get prioritized with marketing dollars but you have to look at the profit margin of each of those lines and as well as sort of like what the total adjustable market looks like too. And then you have to decide, well, I need to put my marketing energy here because this is where we can achieve the growth to be a profitable department. And so you need to, it's important as a marketer to understand the profit margin of your um, of your product groups, honestly. And then also to understand which markets you sell, you sell to who are most profitable. So for instance, in my experience in the welding industry, I don't know the I don't remember the exact numbers offhand, but I do know for a fact that automotive for us was a, was a terrible industry to sell to because our, our margins got squeezed all the time. They took we had to take a point to two points off every year. Whereas an industry like Conag was very profitable for us because the margins were large and the work was so brutal because it's 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 so much strain on the tools that um, that they were constantly ordering new new replacement parts. So it was a highly profitable business for, for us. So you as a marketer need to understand those how those finances work. And that's where you have to spend time with. For me, it was my customer service manager or who, who had that kind of data and knew it. Or for some of you all, maybe your CFO. But just understand like what are your most profitable business segments and why. Uh, and then also work with your product group to figure out what are your most profitable product groups and why. And that's going to really have a lot of impact on where you should be spending most of your energy, given what your expected growth rate should be. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this in the industrial unit economics yep. episode. But um, if you have a high margin product, then you can support more overhead. Mm-hmm. And overhead is sales and marketing is overhead, right? So you you have to subtract the overhead out of the gross margin dollars to, to get your operating profit. And most manufacturing companies are trying to operate profitably. Um, so, you know, you can, you can do more marketing typically in segments that are higher margin, assuming that the segment is large enough to support overhead because overhead tends to come in chunks, right? You got to pay a whole salary. Um, and I, I do think this comes back to another interesting like divergence between marketing for industrial and marketing for SaaS, which is like people have to realize that SaaS businesses spend too much money on sales and marketing to be profitable. Like most of them are not profitable. So um, just keep that in mind when you're benchmarking yourself against it. SaaS business. You never like, benchmark yourself against SaaS company, in, in in my opinion. Like you're you're placing an unrealistic expectation on your marketing department and on and on your expected contribution to revenue. <laughs> yeah. So I mean it comes back around to that point about uh, about just it being really hard to grow revenue in a manufacturing business because mm. 
is a way harder to grow revenue profitably than it is to grow revenue at a loss. Right. You also should be benchmarking against yourself, in my opinion, more so than than other than especially software companies. And if you have a recurring revenue business in manufacturing, because you do contract manufacturing, for instance, like that changes the math for you a little bit, and you should definitely keep that in mind. So there's certainly people who do contract manufacturing, like packaging or stuff like that, like. You know, there's a higher lifetime value there, and hence you could probably spend more to acquire a customer and, and afford to take a little bit more risks. But again, that comes back to understanding the economics of your business and then knowing where you can place bets subsequently. Yeah, so you're not off the hook entirely because you you should run a marketing program that uh, pays for its own overhead. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, don't benchmark yourself against SaaS. It's a recipe for disappointment. Right. Let me ask you a question about this because you actually brought up a thought in my head that I, I thought about. I mean, we, we just mentioned earlier how long it takes for companies for how long it takes for marketing to actually take hold and you know start to work and how hard results are. So, I mean, what is the fair expectation timing-wise for you for that for that operating profitably? Does it have to happen within a year, or are you looking longer based on based on based on you know op- operational time, like lead time and yeah. stuff like that? Um, I think that the first thing that usually has to happen in a manufacturing company is some fundamental market research. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you happen to come in as like a demand gen marketer. Um, and, and you're working for a VP of marketing that has already built the product marketing team and, and done the fundamental strategic marketing work, you can hit the ground running a lot faster. But I'm just going to go ahead and assume that's not true because I think it's not true in 90% of cases. Um, and I think it takes like four to six months to really build up the insights. And a lot, I mean, that's g- generous. The like, insights, like the keyword there, the insights, not the... Not the not the whole engine. Yeah, no, just the insights because you gotta like it's you gotta line up all of these customer calls. You've got to complete them. Um, let's say that takes two to three months, and then you've got to um, you know analyze all of that and then align the team, um, at least marketing and sales uh, around. Okay, which segment are we gonna go after? Um, and then you're going to have to do a bunch of messaging work, uh, what's going to resonate with them. And then you can start cranking out some content like with that messaging baked into it. So I don't even think you're really getting started for four to six months on the true demand gen side of things if you move fast. Um, and then then it kind of depends on your budget, right? Because if you've got a pretty big uh, distribution budget, then you can reach the market super fast. If you've got a more modest budget and you're relying on a ton of SEO, it's going to be slower. Yep. Um, so I would say, like, if you already know what you're doing and you're not going to make a lot of mistakes, you can make a meaningful impact uh, running a demand gen program after like 12 months. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of the big wins that we had at Firetrace took 18 months to two years. Yeah, I was, that was exactly what I was thinking, too. Like, if you're starting new and, and especially if you're if you're having to rebuild a lot of what's happening because you're trying to modernize what you're what you what the company is doing like don't underestimate the time that's going to take because there's just a ton of foundational work that's required and you will i mean you will almost always face resistance because there's just going to be you're just going to rattle cages trying to do stuff like that and so i think i think 12 to 24 months is spot on um depending on how proficient you are and, and how few roadblocks you have yeah um i i honestly think the the biggest risk too is picking 
a bad segment, right? Mm-hmm. Like imagine like d- devoting two to four months to research and messaging development in a segment and then going on, you know, um, putting a salesperson in place and, and having that person focus on that segment with, with product marketing and sales enablement kind of air cover. And then, you know, just figuring out like nine months in like, Hey, this, this is not going to work. We need to pivot to a whole new segment. It's like, you just lost nine months. Yeah. That's tough. No lie. All right. Let's move to, you want to move to cash next or to inventory? Well, so I'll talk about inventory as a part of the discussion on cash, but, uh, Uh, One of the most important things I learned, and I will freely admit that I did not know (laughs) before um, working at Firetrace, um, is really the role of cash and like the meaning of cash uh, on a P&L statement. Um, Or I don't even know. I don't even think it's on a P&L statement. It's just in your financial statement somewhere. Um, There's a difference between cash and profit. So like not, not all profit is cash. Not all cash is profit. So um, cash is like, uh, liquid assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you know what, I might actually make some mistakes in terms of talking about this because I'm not a finance expert, but like, um, there are things that, that impact cash that your executives really care about that you like might not understand why they care so much about it. It's because it doesn't impact profit. So like the easiest example is collecting debt, right? So like right. we were saying earlier, when you when you ship the order, you invoice the customer and, um, and and then you post that as profit, right? But like a lot of customers have like net 30, net 90, net 180 payment terms. And so they don't pay you for the stuff that you shipped, even though you said we made this profit for like that amount of days afterwards. And sometimes they don't pay you at all. <laughs> right. Um, and so like if your company is like, you know, ha- you know, has accounts receivable clerks that are like, calling people all the time, trying to collect cash. That's why you like you don't convert the profit into cash until you actually collect that debt. So it's not like a technically a profit generating activity, but you need cash to keep running the business. Right. Um, and so the other place that I've seen this um, be kind of interesting is when it comes to inventory in a manufacturing business. So like you have to buy inventory to... Um, to like build stuff and ship it. Right. But like when, let's say you buy $5 million of inventory, you're not going to like say, Oh, now we have $5 million less of profit. Cause that like, you have to buy inventory in huge. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an operating cost. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, it's not, yeah. So it's not, um, you don't just take that straight on, on the P and L if you buy $5 million of inventory, um, you assume basically that you're going to convert that inventory into margin by selling it later. But what can happen is like, maybe you don't sell it later. So maybe you're in charge of a product launch as a marketer and you tell manufacturing, like, we're going to sell 10,000 of these in the first year, go and buy a bunch of inventory so that we're ready for it. Like manufacturing is going to be like, are you sure that you want us to buy that much inventory? Um, And it's because if the inventory sits there for long enough, there's like a financial calculation. Uh, Not every company does this, but like a lot of companies have some financial calculation. Um, And and it basically says, okay, it's been sitting here for this amount of time and you haven't sold very many. Now you have to write it off because um, when you have a lot of your um, balance sheet tied up in inventory, then you don't have as much cash. 
And eventually um, there's just like financial calculations that say you need to get rid of this inventory. You're not going to sell it. <laughs> like just cut your losses and leave. Right. Yeah. Um, just get so more cash. Is- right. I mean, yeah. frankly, yeah. just try to recoup as much cash from the inventory that you possibly can. Yeah. So one of the um, interesting, like underrated things that you can do as a marketer is um, find clever ways to like move potentially obsolete inventory. So um, one thing, and this, this is kind of getting into product management territory, but like one thing that um, we did at Firetrace was we had like all these like switches that were becoming obsolete. Um, and we were in a product meeting one time and I was like, Hey, can't like, isn't, I, I asked the engineer, isn't this switch like kind of the same thing as this switch? And it was like, I felt like I was asking a dumb question at the time, but sometimes this shows the, the value of asking just really dumb questions. Um, and the engineer was like, yeah, it kind of is. And I was like, well, we sell, you know, 2000 of these a year and there's 300 of these things that we're like going to have to write off soon. Why don't we just put these into this product? And they're like, we can do that. And so all of a sudden we dropped like the next month, like $40,000 straight to the bottom line because otherwise it was going to be obsolete. So um, if this is something your company looks at and you know the product and know the customers well enough that you can, um, you know, create promotions or find viable substitutions for inventory that might otherwise be obsolete, you can make yourself very valuable in the eyes of the finance team. And we all know the finance team doesn't always love the marketing team. So right. um, something to think about. Yeah, for sure. All right, let's move to customer insights. So this is one thing that, it's, I always find it fascinating because I think you've experienced this and I have too, where your executive, your president is way more interested in the qualitative comments that you get from the audience than any sort of number you could spit out regarding how your ads are running or your SEO. Like Their eyes will glaze over at that, but you show them one comment from a customer about um, about their opinion of a product or the company, and all of a sudden their eyes light up like they love that stuff. So tell me t- tell me a little bit about talking the customer insight language in the in the boardroom because I, I certainly have a couple instances of this that I like to share. Yeah, like the the main point I would want to get across here is like executives, good executives know that it's super important to be close to the customer. But um, most of them aren't close to the customer because it's not the nature of their job to be in front of customers all the time. So um, I think executives should make a special effort to be in front of customers like once a quarter, Um, even quote unquote back office executives like finance. um, I think it's valuable, but um, they rely on frontline people to get access to customer insights. And um, so when you tell executives things about customers that came straight from customers that they don't know, they find that super valuable. Um, so there's really two ways to do that, right? So one of the ways is like, if you're running a lot of content, you're basically getting customer feedback at scale. Yep. Just take some screenshots of interesting, um, comments. comments. Yeah. Like, uh, they, and, and like, so I've, I've actually had an executive tell me before, like, oh, um, what if we could measure like the amount of like commentary we're generating about our brand online? Um, and, and it kind of occurred to me, like, 
I don't think this person truly realizes like that you can just like put content about your brand in front of people on the internet by paying a small fee to a social network. Like not everybody knows that. So like if you, if you can show your executives, like these are the customer insights I see every day by running content at scale, all of a sudden um, the, the demand gen program doesn't just become about dollars in dollars out, but also about look at this communication layer that we're building yeah. up the market. So I remember one of the first things I did when I started at Binzel is because I knew nothing about the welding industry and I knew nothing about the company and I knew nothing about the industry either. Um, I surveyed our entire Salesforce list. <laughs> I just I I put up a twenty five question survey on SurveyMonkey and I sent it to essentially I segmented out you know, like a pretty big database. I sent it to about twelve thousand people, um, and I got about three hundred something responses and aggregated them. And I didn't know what I was doing completely at the time. I, I made some errors designing that survey, but be that as it may, I had a couple open text field questions and the comments that I got from our customers, like my president was read through every single one. He was so interested in people's perception about our company and our products um, that it was it was conversation with him that I was able to have with him for weeks, just about findings that he got, like percentages of like who uses who uses social media, which channel do they use? Um, what is their perception of Benzel? Is it favorable or this? Like, what are some things they don't like about Benzel? What are some things they do like? How do they look at us compared to our competitors? Like all these sorts of things that I, I surveyed the, the, our market on just were the kind of insights that not just like my president saw it. It went to my managing director in Germany. It went to my product management team. Um, and it went to my global marketing director. And it was just something that I think a lot of marketers don't do. But it's a really great way to get to get conversations started with your executive team about the perception of your company uh, in relation to your market and allow you to make you know changes like actionable changes based off of it. Um, don't get me wrong. There's there's probably better ways or there's probably very good ways you could design a survey. But sometimes just putting the designing the best survey that you can to get it out and get that feedback is just a great way to get. Uh, a starting point for your marketing program or a good way to reset or reconsider what you guys are doing. Yeah. I, I also think it's, um, it's always interesting to see what jumps out to yeah. executives and like what jumps out to the finance person might be different than what jumps out to the president might be different than what jumps out to the sales director might be different than what jumps out to you as a frontline marketer. Um, so like another idea would just be like, put a workshop on the calendar or something for like 90 minutes with like some of the key execs and they will say yes to this workshop, <laughs> you know, just be like, I'm going to bring customer insights from like 10 one-on-one -on -one phone calls that I'm going to organize with customers over the next three months. Um, putting this on the calendar with all the execs will also force you to make these phone calls happen. Yep. Um, because now you have something you're working towards, but like send, maybe send out a pre-read with some of the direct quotes, like record the calls if you can do it. And then just like workshop with the execs. Like, what do we think this, um, this customer insight means for our strategy and, um, what, what they notice about the customer feedback might be quite different, um, than yours. And, um, I actually read a paper that was uh, sent to me by our mutual friend, Aaron Haynes, uh, yes. about, about customer insight and how to use it. And, and one of the conclusions was like, it actually takes 
seven different analysts or seven different people reading through insights to actually identify close to 100% of the insights that are available in a raw transcript. So um, you as, a, as an individual marketer are almost uh, certain to not pull all the insights out of a conversation. So it's good to enlist help. And it's the type of things executives don't get to do often and, and, and they would like to see. Um, cool. So we've spoken a little bit about financial metrics, um, revenue, margins, cash. Um, cash is a financial metric that um, I probably didn't explain super well, but I would, um, I would encourage you as a marketer, if you have access to somebody on your finance team, um, to learn more about how cash works and, and what execs um, are thinking about when they make decisions about that metric versus profit. Learn about the difference between between cash and profit. It, it explained a lot for me when I learned that. Um, so yeah, don't don't just uh, don't just take my amateur um, explanation from this podcast uh, necessarily at face value and stop your yeah. learning there. It's a topic to go to go dig into some more. Absolutely, every business is going to interpret that a little differently too. So, what Firetrace did, or how Binzel defines it, is may not be how your company defines it. And you will, I mean, you'll people will explain it to you because you know they'll first off they love talking about it, and secondly, you taking an interest in it is going to be taking initiative that they probably haven't seen before from the marketing department. So it will show well on you. Um, so yeah, that I would I would agree with that. Okay. Awesome. Um, so with that, we will wrap up another week of the industrial marketing show. My name is MJ. And I'm Matt. Catch our podcast on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google. Thank you all so much. Leave us a review. And I'm Matt and MJ for the industrial marketing show. Thank you all so much. Have a great rest of your day.